The podcast you're about to listen to is part of the Professional Casual Network. To find more podcasts like this, please check out professionalcasual.com. The Professional Casual Network has gear. Check out teespring.com slash store slash professional casual for fresh new swag. A huge shout out to our sponsor, beardeddragongames.online. Pick up all your local game store goodness from Magic the Gathering, Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, or Wafurp 4th Edition, as well as Terrain, paints, board games, comics, and more. Make sure to use code PROFESSIONALCASUAL at checkout for free domestic shipping or PCME10 for 10% off your total order at beardeddragongames.online. Also, a special thanks to Built Bar for sponsoring the show. To get 10% off your order and to help support the show, use code PROFESSIONALCASUAL at checkout or use the link in the show notes. So, hey, stop me if you've heard this one. I just recently went to my doctor and I told him that I broke my arm in two places. He told me to stop going to those places. <laughs> Could even get that one out. This is your host, D to the D, Dr. D, reaching out through the supervision sore. Oh my gosh, this is the greatest intro already. Supervision free source of infinity. I'm joined today by a legend that most people will already know about. He needs no introduction. His name is Jake. He is the Lobos. How you doing, brother? Very well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Brother, listen, I knew when I found out that you lived in the northeastern United States, I was going to have to meet you. I did fail in my job as the host of Arachne. I owe you an ice cream because somebody told me you lived up here. And I said that if I ever met you, I would buy you an ice cream. And I did not do that. Well, I will so, take you up on it at Captain Con. I might be at Captain Con. If I will, I will look for you and specifically hand it to you mid game. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> All right, but first before we start talking about ice cream, let's talk some business. Arachne is a part of the Professional Casual Network. If you would like to support the network, please sign up at our Patreon or purchase some hot swag at streamlabs.com, Professional Casual Network 1. I personally am sponsored by Monument Hobbies. They make paint. If you haven't heard of them yet, you're living under a rock. It is one of the most quickly expanding paint lines I've ever seen when it comes to like locations. They have gunshot out of Arizona, I think is where they're located. And it's the best, some of the best paint in the biz. I was just looking at some, I was just watching people talk about their transparent lines and how they're really, really good is for glazes and all that. Couldn't agree more. I've been using the blacks and whites forever. And I got to say, they're some of the best in the biz. So use the code professional casual in all caps. If you go to the website to buy some, it will directly help us out. I absolutely love this stuff and you will too. Once you try it, I'm a, I've really been using their new fluorescence. Absolutely adore them. I've been painting Shatterpoint with them. They make really good lightsaber glows and really good for just some OSL stuff that you might want to do. And it's really, really good for tinting stuff too. So give it a shot. I was actually really pleasantly surprised. I'll write an article about it at some point. We're also sponsored by Baron of Dice. Use the code Arachne to get yourself a 5% discount. They're awesome and they make some great dice. Um, I'm cursed. So don't buy mine because if you do, they'll be bad. But I bet if you bought other ones, they'd probably be really good. And then maybe you'll win. Uh, that'd be 
that'd be pretty cool. Maybe we, maybe we could talk about that, Lobo, how, how you can win. And we can never forget our sponsor, Mr. Laser, at mrlaser.square.site. Uh, I know he's got all the stuff to put up that tray. I got to seriously ask him when he's going to put it up. As far as events coming up, we just had LVO as of time of recording just happened. And before this comes out, I'm pretty sure there's another big event that happens. I don't remember which one it is because I've already deleted it from my list because that's what we call professionalism. And so I'm just here to tell you that I will be hosting my own infinity event in Marlboro, Florida on Florida, Marlboro, Massachusetts. Look at that. The Florida man's coming out of me. Uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts on February 17th. We are going to be doing the first, I believe, infinity tournament at that location, and it will be a resilience ops because we really wanted to try it out. Um, it's going to be the first event that I personally am running. Thankfully, I have a good backup team to handle all the stuff that I really just don't want to do. I love you, Ernest. You're the hero of this story. I'm just the dumbass in front that um, makes really bad jokes. So, yeah, come to that. And then Rocky Mountain Open happens in March 16th to the 17th. It's in Denver, Colorado. I have no idea if Infinity's there, but it is Frontline, and we love Frontline. So please, if you're going to go, buy a ticket through the link in the show notes, and you will directly help the show out. Captain Con is the event that's happening after this. This episode will be coming out the day after Captain Con ends. So you know what? That ice cream, I already got it for you, Lobo, you big jerk. I can't believe you forgot. God, big just seconds after you told me, I've already forgotten. <laughs> that's literally, yeah. I mean, you can't. That's uh, That story writes itself, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so Lobo, we all know who you are up here. Uh, I think anybody that's been playing the game at least for a little bit definitely knows who you are. Anyone that's watched one of Bostria's videos has at least heard your tag pronounced very comically <laughs> because that's the way he talks um, on his videos. You're very consistently placed on as one of the best players in the world. If and, and definitely very high in the U.S. You're definitely top three, at least since last time I saw it. The last, the last two years, actually three years, I was number two in the world all three years, mm-hmm. and I was number one in the country the first two years, number two in the country behind Cobra last year. Rob plays an insane number of games, and it was really hard to to keep pace with him. Every time I used to joke, every time I go to a tournament, I'd be like, "All right, I did well." I'm going to catch Rob and I'd look and he had played two tournaments on the same weekend somehow um, and was already had played 10 more games than I had, <laughs> but Rob's an excellent player. Um, and he was first, he was first in the country, first in the world. Hey, that's amazing. Have you, I'm assuming you've met him in person then. Yeah, I actually played him at uh, Arizona Armageddon just in November. We met up in uh, the third round. So that was, it was a really cool game. That's incredible. So, in is a slight aside. I fully intend to go to more events in the West Coast area. Maybe I could ask you: Is there a different vibe between the East and West Coast players? I think the West Coast players are all—they're even like hyper friendly. Like the people on the East Coast are friendly. I like. I just went to the last event up in Massachusetts where I saw you, and everyone's super nice. I was unfortunately unable to go to the like after the saturday night event so i didn't know i don't know how that was there but when i've gone out to battle by the beach out in santa cruz that's probably nike's store and then i went out to arizona Armageddon, which is uh, tim so chainsaw samurai his store Mm -hmm. they do like they had a cookout on the beach in santa cruz people were the one of the guys there and i apologize i'm actually bad with real names so uh, if you happen to listen to this podcast, you were the one juggling f- like fire sticks. That was really fun. Sutton Imster was out there doing acrobatics. He was doing handstands on the beach. And they're just really warm and welcoming and friendly. Like when I was there, Ar- Ar- Armageddon, 
There are a couple guys there from Vegas who we stayed after and played. And then they were like, oh, come back to the hotel. So we went back to their hotel room and just bullshit about Infinity till about three in the morning on Sunday night. And then all of us got up early and caught planes flying home. I was a little tired, but. You must have been exhausted. I had the day off, so it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> so this is something like I'm, I, I've always thought I'm at least okay at judging people, right? You know, because with being a doctor, you kind of have to be good at making shotgun assumptions. I don't want to say assumptions about people, but you got to make quick judgments, right? And I have to say, the thing that is remarkable about you is that when I met you, you clearly have an enjoyment of, it seems like everything that is involving Infinity, as opposed to just like, being good at the game, if that makes sense. So interestingly enough, I would say that is not accurate. Really? Okay. Um, yeah. So for whatever reason, I have like zero interest in the infinity lore. Hmm. I've never read the stuff. Um, I was introduced into infinity by some friends of mine at a local gaming store. I, most of my gaming was either historical miniatures mm -hmm. or 40 K and fantasy battle. Naturally. And then a little bit epic, mostly games workshop stuff. And then one of my friends was like, Hey, you should really try this game. I played the game. I really, really liked it. I thought it was better pretty much in every way than any games workshop game I played. And, um, so I fell in love with the game, but my, <laughs> I have very little, very few artistic skills. Um, I made a birdhouse in woodshop one year. It was condemned by the greater housing condition, uh, committee. Um, I've painted models and they look like something Salvador Dali did <laughs> and not in a good way. Wow. So just, I, uh, I'm very good at playing the game. I really love playing the game. I love meeting the people. So like, if you want to talk about more than just winning, it's about the atmosphere and it's it's so incredible getting back into the gaming store and getting back to the tournaments. Um, one of the unfortunate things for me is I live in New Jersey, which has a bazillion people, but hardly any infinity gaming. Um, which is crazy. Cause I think the nearest thing to you is like Albany, New York, or maybe Connecticut actually. Uh, so there is a gaming, if you don't mind shout outs. So there's a gaming store in New Jersey, Maplewood hobbies. Uh, my friend Kyle is, name is toasty on the infinity uh forums he runs the occasional tournament uh maplewood actually he's running one on the same weekend as captain con so i won't be able to go sure um and he also runs a store there's a store in uh, new york city caracosa that he works out of mm -hmm. but though those are relatively new additions for years it was just like a dearth of infinity gaming and for a while i was literally driving to connecticut or to Upstate New York, not Albany, but um, now I'm blanking on the name of the store. Regardless, it was like an hour and a half to two hour drive where I wanted to go to a tournament. Yeah, because, you know, it's funny. Uh, Tim, he lives in New York, too. He's the guy that hosts the, uh, the network. And something he always says is that when people say, oh, hey, New York, people instinctively always think about the city. But the fact that there is an insane amount of space that is occupied by the fact of just New York, because, I mean, Jersey even if you're at, in Southern Jersey, I would say the city, like New York City is probably what, at least at least like two hours, like probably about a two hour drive. You can drive from the Southern tip of New Jersey to Northern tip in about three hours. If yeah. There's no, no traffic. Which is wild because coming from the South, right? When we started going to Gen Con, because we used to drive 
by car there, which is a whole other story. But whenever we left Florida, you have to think that when we left, because we were like middle, like where Orlando is, about middle of the panhandle, for us to get from there to Georgia would take us like five, six hours. And then you got to go through Georgia. And then Georgia was like another eight hours, which is crazy. So it's funny to think that people in the South don't understand that the new the New England like northeastern states are all like really tiny like it's a, like for me to go to New Hampshire is as much of a drive as it was for me to get to the next closest town when I still lived in the south right so up here you can just cross a state border and it takes like no time at all right compared to like the entire day drive it would take <laughs> to get to the next state down south because the states are so much bigger. So to put it into perspective, imagine if you were living somewhere in the south and the closest place that you could play a game was like four or five hours away. That's essentially the equivalent of, what, <laughs> of what's going on up here. Yeah, I mean, the Midwest is like that. My, um, my ex-wife's family is from Iowa, and I remember going to visit them. And the drive from the airport was like four hours. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Ride. What are we doing here? Is there no, <laughs> no airport closer? Um, so my mom, my mom lives in rural Missouri. And if we ever fly into St. Louis, it's a five hour drive so <laughs> to get back to her house. And the flight is probably only about four. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. You gotta love it. Gotta love the flyover state. But anyway, we love everybody who listens to the show in the flyover states. To me, you're not the flyover states. You're the, you're the, the heart and soul of America. Ladies and gentlemen, I love you guys. Like I was saying, this is obviously Lobo. He doesn't really need an introduction. I've been told that before he started playing this game, he was a dolphin riding champion. Is there anything you want to say about that? I read that random fact on the internet. Well, normally I would tell you not to believe any of everything you read on the internet, but um, I have the fin scars <laughs> on my inner thighs to prove Oh my gosh. So, no, I mean, before, before I played Infinity, I actually, again, a lot of 40K, um, a lot of fantasy battle. I'm, I am much, much older, I think, than the vast majority of people who play Infinity. Um, in fact, I relatively routinely play people who are the same age as my son. Um, so, uh, so I grew up, I was born in 72. Um, so I broke my teeth on like old school D&D, you know, the red box set, the expert set, which is the blue one, companion, so on and so forth. Actually, funny story, I I had no idea what Dungeons & Dragons was. I moved to a new school in seventh grade. My friends were like, oh, you got to play this? I'm like, okay, sure. I wanted to fit in. And um, so I told my dad, I was like, hey, can you buy me Dungeons & Dragons? He didn't know what the hell it was either. So he comes home and he has the companion set, which is for characters at like levels 14 to like 25 or whatever. Sure. And there's no instructions on how to play the game because that's all in the basic set. I spent like hours going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do because it doesn't make any sense. Level 14, what about level one? So I had to wait a little while before I admitted to my friends I didn't know how to play. And they're like, oh, you have the wrong books. Idiot. Why did you just look on the internet and read all the articles about that stuff? What are you doing, Lobo? It's like you were around before that was a big thing. Exactly. Jeez. Anyway, so we're already kind of tipping into it. Let me just officially ask the question. Hey, what's your nerd origin story? Go. Okay, so as I said, the first, I, I didn't actually play any games until I was in seventh grade, and then my friends got me into Dungeons and & Dragons, and then in the companion set, there was the battle system, where you could have large battles between armies, and that sort of caught my imagination, and I sort of went from that into Warhammer Fantasy Battle, because that was the closest thing I could find to 
doing large scale, scale battles. And ironically, at time of recording, uh, the old world just came out. Oh, that's cool. Like this, this last weekend, I was, I just read all the books and the, uh, FAQs and all that stuff or not the FAQs, the, the, I don't know what you want to call them, the, the fake rules or whatever, um, the rules that they wrote for all the armies that aren't like in the main book. It's actually really well done. It felt like old fantasy because I also started with fantasy. Sorry to interrupt. Please keep going. So yeah, I started when it was, I remember being able to, it was before the first empire book came out. Like I remember buying the first empire book. And you could get, uh, they had just switched <laughs> scales because right. I had bought, there was a pack called Knights of the Blazing Sun and they were true 25s. And then like a month later, they released the first, Reichs, first Reichsguard foot, which were 28s. And I had to throw away my Reichsguard, Knights of the Blazing Sun because they looked like pygmies next to the actual <laughs> rest of the miniatures. Sure. You mu- it must have blew your mind when the, because I think the Empire line was the very first one that went to plastic. Yes, yes. But that was a little later. Plus, a lot of their stuff was was metal. This is back when, I shit you not, I played 40K too, and I was playing Space Marines, and a, a pack of rhinos. You got two rhinos for $20. Um, and at the time, I was like, wow, that's kind of expensive. And looking back, it's hilarious. So I think this is also the days of when you bought a starter and you got a dreadnought that was made of paper. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's like the same era. Uh, I never got a dreadnought made of paper. The only dreadnoughts I had were the ones that weighed like five pounds. <laughs> yeah. It's like a Maggie from Infinity. You just like hit yeah. put in a sock and kill someone. Yeah, it's the um the angry fire hydrant, I think is what they used to call them. Yeah. And then I went from uh, <laughs> Fantasy Battle and 40k, I did Epic Space Marine, and I did Warmaster, and and then one of my friends introduced me to a couple people who were playing a World War II game. Uh, called Command Decision, mm-hmm. and I started to play that a lot. And from there, in on the East Coast, uh, HMGS is an organization that handles mostly historical stuff, but they do now. They're all, they have a lot more science fiction fantasy at their convention, so they have a convention March, July, and November. And I started going there, and those are relatively big. There's like two, three thousand people who show up. It's a lot of fun. You you don't have to bring anything, right? You just show up sign up for a table and play. And the, the GMs will bring the scenario, they'll bring all the miniatures. And that's really why I got my foot in the pool of historical wargaming. And then I started writing for started writing for Command Decision. I have six scenario books that I've published, all in World War II. That's amazing. Well done. That are out there. Thank you. It was it's a labor of love. You know, it was a lot of fun. I love the game. I love military fiction military history in general. Um, but World War II specifically. And you're preached you're preaching to the choir, brother. I absolutely adore historical wargaming, historical just just learning about it, because truly looking back is a great way to look forward, in my opinion. Well then I would definitely suggest making it out to Historicon, which is in July, or Fall In, which is in November. They're dirt cheap, because it's like if, even if you don't do anything, I think it's like 75 bucks to get in and you can play as many games as you want. There's no, there's no like table fee. So you just, you can play when I was younger, I used to play like three games a day and then board game all night and then just do it again. And they usually run this one. The summer is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then the one in the, the one in March and November, are Friday, Saturday. That's a, that sounds like a blast. So one of the very first big tournaments I ever went to was actually World War II. I was playing Flames of War. I was really big into it. And in NOLA in New Orleans, 
they have the, I believe it's Higgins. The, it's where they used to make the Higgins boats for World War II. It's essentially that boat that they used in D-Day with the little latch in the front of it for the people back, you know, people driving in the car don't know what Higgins boat is. And they have a museum in New Orleans. It's incredible. I definitely recommend you go. But when I was younger, I'm not sure if they still do it. If they did, I probably would still go to it. They had a World War II gaming convention. And this was the first time I ever rubbed shoulders with like upper brass of companies because at Battlefront were the people that had uh, Flames of War at the time. I think they still might have it. Uh, I actually bumped into like one of the marketing directors and I actually talked to like me and him emailed back and forth a little bit because I was helping run like a war gaming club at the college I was at and all that stuff. So it's funny you say that because I also have a very strong uh, beginning in historical war gaming. That's incredible. I had no idea. That's that's amazing. I can't. That's way more interesting than the dolphin riding thing. Well, you know, the, what splashes leads. So that's why you get the dolphin <laughs> reference out there. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so you play a bunch of that. What? In, how do you get introduced to Infinity proper? Um, so the gaming store that I used to play at, which is Highlander Comics and Games in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. A couple of my friends worked there and we used to play 40K and I was running like a narrative campaign for 40K at the time it was 7th edition. And my friend Josh was like, hey, listen, you really got to check this game out. It's a lot of fun. So I'm like, sure, why not? He had multiple armies. And then once I played it, I, I for me, what drives it is the ARO system and the fact that I am not just, okay, we roll for initiative. You won. I'm going to go to the bathroom and get a drink and then go get some food and come back. And then you're, I'll take my turn. It's so much more interesting when you're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then... They do this. I don't know if they do it up in stores up by you, but at Maplewood Hobbies, three, four times a year, they'll have an auction. So everybody brings all their crap they don't want anymore and sure. they auction it off. So I got like 60 Yujing figures for like $30. Nice. I didn't even know. I, I didn't know what it was. I was like, all right. Um, and I just went through in the army builder and was like, okay, this is what this is. And I made a list and I played it. And I won, but I was like, all right, I don't like this. And I just sort of just played around with it. But until COVID, I played, I played Eugene. My son was playing for a little bit. He played uh, US Ariadna. So I got some Ariadna stuff uh, to branch out. But I mostly played Vanilla Eugene. And if I played one game a month, one game every other month, that was a lot. And they used to have tournaments back then. I would win most of the tournaments. <laughs> In fact, I don't think I've actually lost a tournament yet in real life. In real life. I have not won. There are several AG, IGLs I've been in that I've not won. But there, it, it was a very, very small scene. It was like me and like four people. So it was, it was, you play the same people every time. So it wasn't until COVID hit and credit where credit is due, Vol SC, he's the one who started pushed everybody to TTS. I, and I started playing on there. And that's where... I can really, I really sort of played all the time because my job, I work from home. It is not very stressful and I can get in games against the Australians at one time a day against the English a different time a day, the Russians at different, and then the Americans at night. So there were times where I was playing seven to 10 games of infinity a week. That's crazy. So practice, 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 practice. And I, I still maintain if anybody, I think, well, you want to touch on it later, like advice. The biggest piece of advice I can give anybody is pick a list. I don't care what the list is. 
and just play it to death because it's muscle memory. And that's where I started to, I started to win a lot of games and you know, this is really the only game I, it's really the only game I play once a month. I go to my friend's house and we get together and play world war two. But apart from that, infinity is the game I play primarily to put it into perspective. Loba, I'm starting to think we're the same person in a lot of ways. Cause ironically enough, when I moved up here to Massachusetts, I had a bunch of infinity stuff cause I played it a bunch in Florida. Uh, shout out to James Pittman and the little group of guys that he's got going on down there right now. And so when I moved up here, I had a bunch of U.S. Ariadna that I had sitting around because I was I'm big, I'm big into just the, the corny American patriotism. I abs- I'm, I die for it. I absolutely love it. Um, just the fact how silly it is sometimes. And so when I moved up here, I was like, I have all these stuff. Nobody here up here plays Infinity. I'm just going to try and sell it. I went to one of those store auction things, sold it to a guy who made me aware of the store where they played Infinity. I went there the next week. And I have played Infinity reliably every single Tuesday since I went there. That's really cool. It's I, it's crazy how it works. I don't know. I wish I had a store that was a little closer or at the very least. Because a lot of times I, I would go to the store and you couldn't guarantee that there was going to be somebody to play. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. It's, with TTS, I find it so much easier. Because I could drive to the store, but that's a 40-minute drive. <laughs> and maybe someone's there and maybe someone's not. And then you got to set up. So long story short, TTS has made me lazy because I don't have to move from my chair and I don't have to move any models. And I don't have to move any terrain. I just hit a button and it's all there. That's that's just the one thing about TTS is I will never poo-poo anybody that uses TTS, but it just doesn't feel the same to me. You know what I mean? Like just like I, I have that. Te- well, as a chiropractor, right? I'm kind of preordained to wanting to touch things, right? You know, because that's like the whole my entire existence, right? But touching the models and like being able to see the people it just i can't compare it it just never will be the same to me to my own detriment for me and this is me i cannot compare tts to a tournament like i would Mm -hmm. always 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 rather do a real life tournament than playing tts because it's not just the game it's the environment seeing everybody it's going out afterwards going out to lunch the camaraderie but comparing a one-on-one game of infinity in real life to a one-on-one game of infinity online to me it's the same thing i can communicate with you just as well talking on discord as i can looking over the table at you i think the skill sets are very different on tts it's much slower Mm. the games take longer a lot of the times the maps are published for weeks before the tournament so people grind games on the maps they know how they're going to set. They know how they're going to set up. They know. And by the way, I've done it. I'm not. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I have absolutely done that. So, so on TTS in those situations, it's more about being able to analyze the map and pick the best attack route and know that ahead of time. And in an in-person tournament, you don't have that. It's show up. There's the map. Okay, make your decisions now. Where do I set up? I don't have time to play a practice game and figure out that. Oh shit! That spot, which looked really good, is actually terrible. You have to be able to spot that immediately or deal with the problem during the game, which I think is an interesting switch, like change of skill sets to, to play around with. Which I think one of the other big things with playing on TTS is you have to have a completely different sense of, like, I guess you would call like spatial awareness just because like 
like you're saying, like if you look at something in real life, you might it might look completely different to you. But like in an online sense, if you look at a table, it I don't know. It's just like the space, like the way it occupies space is just like so much harder to like fully visualize on an online plane, if that makes sense. I can definitely see that it's different. And it's I would also suggest it's just practice. Hmm. Most people are normal and don't play hundreds of games of infinity online and so and so you are much more used to looking at something with your eyes in real life i have played way more infinity online than i've ever played in real life and infinity online i can do things like remember online the opponent's bases are bright colors Mm -hmm. and i can zoom around that table in seconds and get down into positions i cannot get to in real life I can flip around to your side. I can flip around to my side. I can zoom up. I can zoom down. Oh, crap. I can look and see there is like a five millimeter patch of red of his base that I can see from this angle all the way across the board. And you can't do that reliably in real life. So it's a, like I said, it's just, it doesn't translate necessarily, mm-hmm. but I would argue that many, many people who are like, oh, I don't like TTS doesn't feel right. They just haven't done it enough. And that's not a bad thing. If they don't enjoy the experience, they shouldn't be forced to continue, like, you know, shut up and eat your vegetables. Like, <laughs> to shut up and play Infinity Online until you get good at it. And to, and to turn this into a valuable lesson, even me personally, I always tend to forget. And I think, T- and actually, you know what? TTS games might be a good way to get better at this in practice. Whenever I play in person, if I ever have a model standing, I forget. That not only do you have the model standing, if you take the volume of the cylinder, they actually are surprisingly visible, like in the back half of the of the base, you know, of the, of the actual cylinder. So if you're standing up against a, like, let's just say like, um, like a display or whatever, like in the middle of the board, right? You know, something that's like vaguely, slightly taller than S2, you hide behind it and maybe your model's standing, you're staring straight at it because you want to see anything that comes to the left or the right. If you have something, a sniper per se, that is on top of a building, there's a very good chance that due to the height of it, you may not be able to see like the model, but you can definitely see like the back half of that cylinder, the volume of that cylinder. And it's bit me at least more than once um, with people that I assume play a lot more online because they have no problem seeing it. I would have never even thought about it. And that's especially true of stuff like Silhouette 4. And larger bases. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, it just sticks so far back from that linear obstacle that even a little bit of elevation will let you get clipped in the back. So, uh, viewer, if there are viewer, you're not really well. I guess some people might be viewing this. Um, If you're listening to this, that might be the lesson you take from this: is truly comprehend that the back, like truly comprehend the entire volume of the base, because in this game, honestly, the model doesn't mean anything. It's literally just the occupied volume of the base itself so if you don't see the model that doesn't necessarily mean you can't see the unit if that makes sense so there you go there's that lesson so uh yeah all right before we get completely bogged down and walking down memory lane what's your favorite faction i think the best faction or the faction i've had the most success with is vanilla nomads and i really however like starmata like starmata has grown on me so those two factions are probably my favorite I also play a lot of Cosmoflot. I guess those three are my top, like my top three, but I think Vanilla Nomads is what I sort of made my bones on. And if I'm famous for anything, it's that I play a list to death. And 
that one list has gone round and round and round and round. I'm by no means the only person to have sort of independently arrived at that list. I just think I'm the one who's played it the most. To to anybody that doesn't know, there are a few lists out there that are called Lobo lists. I was going to bring it up. You actually preempted me on it. Let's just say the Moran vanilla list, I believe, was your concoction. Or at least, again, other people probably would have eventually gotten to that point, but you're the one that popularized it. I guess. <laughs> you guess uh, he guesses. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't like, I don't know. I don't want to seem like I'm bragging by any stretch. Cause again, I am, there are lots and lots and lots of amazing infinity players out there. So any one of whom can beat me on any given day. And uh, anybody listening to this, we were talking about this a little bit right before we started recording how, when you go out into the real world, there's like a certain sense of like notoriety. And let me just tell you, having met the man in person, I can tell you that Lobos doesn't have that, I don't know, like uh, the ego that fills the room. You would have no idea. Actually, like you were saying with the portal thing earlier, if you want, I guess you could talk about this story again. When you walk into the room, nobody has any idea who you are because you're just like a regular guy. You don't come in bragging about like, yeah, you probably have heard of me. I'm, you know, you know, I'm pretty cool. I'm kind of the guy, you know, and yeah, what, what, actually, you know what? Just go off script a little bit here. What do you, what's your like interpretation of that? Of what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about being like known to the greater community? It has never once got me a girlfriend. <laughs> it is me too, man. <laughs> it has never once earned me. Well, that's not true. I have actually now earned enough money on Infinity to buy a cup of coffee. No, I think it's actually, in some ways, it's sort of like, it feels good, obviously, because people know who you are, and that that means you're good at something. It's a little, I, okay, off-putting is wrong, because off-putting makes it sound like it's bad. I guess it just takes me aback sometimes when someone comes up and is like, hey, uh, I'm, I'll tell the story again. I told you before. So, Phil Rosie, Hi, Phil. Um, hi, I Phil. met him for the first time at... The portal in Connecticut, along with uh, Rich and Alex, who were Dragoon Twenty Four Whale of Forum. Great people, by the way. If anybody has the opportunity to meet them, they are stand-up guys. Uh, so I was at the tournament. It was the first time I was at the portal. First time I met them, I introduced myself as Jake, and we talked for a little bit before. And then there was another player at the tournament whose both real name and Infinity name is Jake, and. They were calling out pairings and they said, you know, Jake versus Whale of Forum. And I was like, is that me? And they're like, no, Lobo, you, you're going to be called later. And I like from across the room, like Phil sort of his head popped up and was like, and he came over to me and he was like, oh, you're Lobo. That's, that's really cool. I've listened to you on podcasts. I sort of been, you know, listening to how you play and it made me feel really uncomfortable, but (laughs) because, um, (laughs) You know, he's a grown man and I felt like a dad and I, I was just very uncomfortable at the moment, but he's a super nice guy and we struck up a conversation and all, all those guys and I are really good friends now. Um, I'll be staying at Wellform's house um, when I play in Capticon and I appreciate you, Richard, and your lovely wife, Joe. We, we even had a impromptu tournament in his basement and yes, his wife is absolutely lovely. We absolutely adore her. But now it's just like, I go, okay, you know, oh, that's cool. Yes. I just downplay it as much as I can because it's, uh, for me, it makes me a little uncomfortable, but cause I, I just play a game, you know, it's not like a big deal. And I will say every single time you've ever come up in conversation, 
like like at our local game shop. To your own credit, absolutely, I have never heard a single person say a single negative thing about playing you, other than the fact that you crush their soul with how good you are. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a backhanded compliment I got. I think it's a backhanded compliment. Um, I was at I was at Arizona Armageddon, and uh, I was playing guy second round. Great guy, Nico. And after the game, he came up to me. He's like, listen, I think it's important you know this. I've never met you before. I didn't know anything about you. I just knew you were a really good player and you were near the top of the lists. He's like, I came into this game fully expecting you to be an asshole. And you're not an asshole. And I want to think you, I think you should know that. <laughs> like, Thank you. <laughs> I was like, is there any reason why you thought I was an asshole if you didn't know me? He's like, well, you know, most people who are competitive and play are just sort of assholes during the game. and that's that, that's that ego that fills the room thing I'm talking about. You got none of it. There's none of it on you. I try. So as a, as a good example, if anybody, it's again, another lesson to take out of this is if you ever have the chance to meet Lo, uh, Jake in this case, to ever walk up and meet him, you should because he really is. a. Obviously, we're just talking here just like guys and he's like, he's just a great guy. Well, thank you. So there you go. Like if, if the lesson of this episode is you don't have to be a jerk to be good at games. Yeah, no, I, you I, just, I think infinity and I'll, we'll talk about infinity just for a second. I think one of the best things about infinity is even in the most competitive settings, 99.9% of the time, the game is played with my opponent, not against my, I say at the beginning of every one of my games until dice are rolled, pull back whatever you want. Like if you move here and I say, okay, I'm going to see this guy and you go, oh, I didn't want to move that far. Go ahead. Like I, uh, the, the game, uh, the game I played against that guy, Nico, he, he had spent an order. He's like, Oh, I should have used my NCO order. I'm like, I don't care. Go ahead. Just, it doesn't matter because what's important is, I mean, winning is important to me. I'm very competitive, but at the same time, it's not worth ruining a game or ruining a good time at a tournament because, um, of a small rules disagreement, you know? And it could and it could be make or break for the other person you play against, right? It's like you don't even know you don't know how the rest of their day has been going. They could be under a ton of stress. Mm-hmm. You're just getting a snapshot in that guy's life. You don't want to be the ba- <laughs> you don't want to be the bad part of it. Right. Right. And it is a very cooperative game. I do agree with you. Every single sentiment that you have brought up so far, it is this game is played together. It is definitely not a game you play I go, you go type thing. Both people are looking to have a fun time with Infinity. You can definitely tell by the community that is formed around it. So I guess in, and like you're saying with uh, the tournaments and all that, they're obviously big to you. Is there anything that you in particular tend to do in preparation for a tournament? Is there any kind of like rituals that you usually drink follow? heavily? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Especially if they're going against you. <laughs> Honestly, no, I don't have any sort of like pregame ritual. So this is something, this is where if anything, I get into, disagreements with people because I, and I've sort of learned how to approach this better. I play a list and because that in my head after, you know, the first time I play an army, I put together in my head what I think is good. And then after I played a bunch of times, I, some of my choices, I confirm in my head, some of my choices, like, oh, it's not going to work. And I, I flip around. Eventually I find a way that for me, this faction plays best with this list here. Boom. And that is the list I play when I play that faction. Hmm. And there's many people who are like, well, what, that's so boring. Like how, why don't you play this one or this piece or this piece? 
And that's where my competitive side comes in. Because to me, sure, I could swap up my list so it's not the same all the time. And But in my opinion, at least, many of the changes or many of the models that don't see play very often don't see play for a reason, at least from a competitive perspective. Sure. So I sort of, I have sort of adapted my phrase, phrasing online to say, it, you know, the best way to play Infinity is the way that makes you have the most fun. For me, I, I like consistency. And, I, and for me, this list is as consistent as I can make it. And I just play it until it's as, you know, nothing's 100% because there's dice. Naturally. But if I could get something at 99.9%, that's where I want to be. And if I switch up my lists, that consistency is going to go down. But for a lot of people, consistency is not the point to play in the game. They want to put, hey, I bought this model. I know it sucks in the game. I don't care. It looks really cool. I want to get it on the table. That particular way of thinking is not mine. But I recognize mine's not right, right? I don't have the right way to play. It's just my way to play. And everyone has their own version. Now, if somebody wants to play your way, give us some tips. What have you found to be the most consistent things? Obviously, it's you know faction by faction, but like general sweeps. What things do you think in the current state of the game give the best consistency? So you want a you want a piece or two to put down arrows. You want a piece or two to exploit the fact that your opponent has no arrow, and you want some defensive pieces. And almost. Almost every faction has combinations of that. So a brief list, like the factions I use the most. So Vanilla Nomad. An HRMC and a Ballistic Skill 14 tag is a really good ARO killer. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Multi-wound. So, That's important yes. to note. Multi-wound is very important for that role. So if anything's standing, odds are the, the Sally puts them down. Or they don't even start with them standing to begin with. Mm-hmm. So if they don't start with them standing or I've killed the arrow pieces, then you follow up with a heckler or you follow up with the, the Uberfall commando, or you follow up with the puppet bots. Those are all fast moving, close range, powerful pieces. Mm. Starmada. It's the same thing. It's the Zeta instead of the Sally. It is the road bots instead of the Uberfall commando or the, or the puppet bots. Cosmoflot. Bear. You, you put down arrows, the unknown ranger in a link or the Volkalak missile launcher in a link. And then the bear goes in. Or you could use Yusha as a sort of disposable ARO killer. So on and so on and so forth. But that is that is the the methodology. And of course, I know this gets more airtime than anything else, but guided missile is a tool that gets used. I use it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I know a lot of people hate it. To that I say, listen, everyone has it's if it's legal and it's in the game, enjoy it. Have people guided missiled me? Absolutely. Have they killed my lieutenant with a guided missile? Absolutely. <laughs> Does it matter? Sometimes. You know, the last tournament I was at before that, before the one I played with you, I was playing against Vanilla Combined. I was Cosmoflot. He went first, killed William Wallace with a guided missile, first turn. I was in Lost Lieutenant my first turn. It was hard. I had to play from a back foot position, but I still won the game. It doesn't mean you ought to lose. But I think. Even beyond all of the what pieces should I have in my list, it's about practicing deployment, practicing alpha striking, practicing defending against alpha strike. Because like I watch games online, a lot of people put out YouTube content on their games. And the game is over turn one. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Because of the way the guy deployed or the guy went first and didn't 
do anything. He sort of just moved around and I think have a plan and stick to it. And that's not easy, right? If you, if you're switching lists all the time or you're constantly changing up your pieces, it's harder to have that muscle memory of how to like, cause every infinity game is a completely mm-hmm. unique challenge. The map changes, your list potentially changes, your opponent's lists always change. And so you have to put that puzzle together every single game. So if you, if the more consistent your pieces are, the faster and more effectively you can solve that puzzle. So, you know what? I think this is going to dominate the rest of this episode because this is actually, this is a rare opportunity to get into the mind of somebody who is actually uh, good at the game and can have a positive uh, KD, if you know what I'm saying. So let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. You're obviously, you obviously know how to play this game. I don't think anyone can doubt that. If you are, let's just say you're playing, let's just say you're playing your vanilla nomad list, right? Yep. The the Moran uh, slazzy list that we're all at least vaguely aware of if you've been in this game for any amount of time. If you go up against somebody who has a list that's following the, the same core concepts that you just said, which I imagine most high level players do some varying levels of like about the same, right? There's going to be some similarities for sure. So if you go against somebody who let's just say, uh, has the exact same list as you. Let's just say the other person's playing, which I'm sure has happened. You're playing against somebody who has the same vanilla nomad list. If you're going second and they have the active pieces, what do you do for your AROs? Do you have them stand or do you just accept that alpha strike from the heckler or the bear or whatever? Well, the reason the heckler is so good is because you can't stop it. Right. So that unfortunately, fortunately, for the Nomad players, unfortunately for everybody facing them, and maybe something Corvus Belly should look at, is that the way it functions, it's physically impossible to stop it doing what it wants to do. I, d- I do, and it all comes down to the, I always call it the wrong thing, the 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 drop, not the drop bear, but the crazy koala? Fast panda. The fast panda. So actually, it's funny because I play against somebody who plays almost exclusively Tunguska. And every time I see that stupid camo token move, I'm like, oh, okay, there's going to be a repeater in my deployment zone momentarily. Okay, maybe we'll change the example a little bit. You're playing against somebody who can't do that. <laughs> what do you do? So against the fast panda, you have to deploy where you're splitting up your uh, important pieces. Because he only has one. Mm-hmm. So he's going to find something and nuke it. And there's really nothing you can do about it. All you can do is limit the damage. But if we sure. ignore the fast panda for argument, let's say we're playing against Cosmoflot, which has bears and Yusha and the Ranger and a lot of good attack pieces. Mm-hmm. So... For like most armies, you want to set up lots of diagonally facing arrows. You don't want deployment zone to deployment zone ARO. You want them looking at a 45 degree angle across the board because what you're shutting down there okay. is his ability to just spend one order on a tag and kill your ARO piece and then potentially spend another order and kill another ARO piece. You want him to have to move that tag two, three times up the board to be able to see you before he gets to shoot at you. Because every order you make, because think in that case, if he has to spend three orders to come shoot at your piece, you've stripped two with your command token. He spent three more. That's five. That's a third of his orders already. And maybe he kills your ARO piece. Maybe not. The other thing you want to do is you want to use as many sort of non-hard AROs as you can. So for instance, in the Vanilla Nomads list, the Morans are hidden. They're on rooftops. They're in buildings. They're as far away from anything as they can be. 
And still they're in the middle of the board. If it's hackable, it's getting locked down. If it's not hackable, it's getting spotlit as they go past it. If they want, they have to deal with the crazy koalas, which are not hard to deal with. There's a lot of things that can move in and just move dodge and the koala doesn't hit them. But there's still on most things like a 35% chance that the koala does hit you and kill you. And it costs me nothing. And now you're down. Not only are you down a model, you're down two or three orders that you spent on that model to go deal with the Moran. And now it's dead. And even on the 65% of the time, it doesn't get killed by the koala. You still have to go kill the Moran. Then maybe you do, maybe you don't. Odds are you do, but it's still orders and time. And all I need to do is delay you. Every order you spend not killing me is a win for me. Because I know a lot of people like to, they, they play a positional game where they're moving their stuff up into the middle of the board. And for my money, that's just moving your guys into the kill zone. If I go first, everything in my army either stays in my DZ or goes completely across the board into your DZ, and I don't care if it dies. If it lives, wonderful. But I'm not committing a 100-point Harris. I'm not sending a 70-point tag into your deployment zone. I'm sending a bear or two puppet bots, who I don't even care if they die because they don't generate orders. You want disposable attack pieces that you can get in their DZ, kill as much as you can. If they live, then they, they have to unfuck themselves because now they've got this model that they can't ignore, but now you've stripped orders from them, and now they have to waste orders killing it. I don't know if that helps. Does that help? I don't know. I kind of rambled there a bit. but No, that was perfect. That was exactly what I was after. Because I've noticed that the times when I feel the worst while playing the game is when I go first, everything of theirs is laying down, and then I spend 10 orders killing, in this case, a heckler. And you're like, damn it. That felt so bad. <laughs> like, I could have done so many other things. And the lesson I've had to learn is that if you truly can't get out of your DZ to go take care of a problem, it's almost better to just not move. If you're not going for like some kind of, you know, like a mission, like an objective point, right? If you can't get a card, if you can't remove an obstacle that will stop your second wave, or if you can't at least get rid of some of the midfield crap, it's better to just, like you're saying, not make it easier to kill your stuff. Don't use five orders and just stand there. Maybe go suppressive, right? Or whatever. Why would you literally just want to present to the other person on a silver platter something for them to just annihilate when you have let when you're more vulnerable? Because obviously you're always more vulnerable in the ARO part of the game, right? Yep. And more than that, by definition, something in the midfield is less secure than in your DZ. You got a lot, you got a lot, I was just about to say, you got a lot more real estate you got to cover because you got things that could drop in behind you. You have hidden deployment stuff that could be in the midfield. You're just opening yourself up to a lot of pain. Correct. Emotionally and physically. And then the only other thing is the way this game works is the missions are either heavily second player favored or not. And if they're heavily second player favored, if you go first, you really need to mess the guy up. Because number one, you're losing two orders off the bat. And then after your first turn, if you haven't knocked him on his ass, he can just sort of ride that second turn momentum to victory. It's sort of interesting. At lower and mid levels of play... I would advise almost everybody <laughs> to take deployment because at low to mid levels of play, the alpha strike is not going to be super hard and your opponent is probably not going to strip six, seven orders off you. Hmm. In fact, there's a lot of cases where they might kill one or two things. They might lose one or two things, killing one or two things. And now you're at an enormous advantage, but as the skill level goes up, that alpha strike gets harder and harder, and so it's more advantageous advantageous to take it unless you are really confident you can withstand that alpha. Makes sense to me. Now, 
when you have scenarios like, let's just say supplies, right? Something where the objective is in the midfield. They don't really need to enter your side of the table in order for the game in order for them to win. Very important for you to have strong ARO presence, either hard or soft. In those situations, is it better to have, like you're saying, like if you can't get a diagonal look at one of the objectives, is it better to have a overly exposed ARO piece as opposed to no ARO piece? Or would you actually just wait and see if you could ride the second wave momentum or the second turn momentum to clean, clean up afterwards? If I go second my opponent, if I go second in supplies and my opponent spends their first turn grabbing two supply boxes, I'm perfectly happy because they didn't hurt. And I'll have my entire order pool and all of my tools to now carry the fight to them. And yes, sure, they may have gotten two supply boxes and brought them back to their deployment zone, but I can still usually pick apart that puzzle. Hmm. I'm actually more worried about them. Like if I play supplies, I don't touch the boxes on turn one. If I go first, I ignore them. I go right for you. And then, but that's typically, that is the answer in every game, in every scenario, except countermeasure, because countermeasures, you're required to do something on first turn. Otherwise those objectives points go away. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every other scenario, go for your opponent, strip orders or strip his ability to do things because to varying degrees, the scenario favors the second player. I think B pong is a perfect example of a scenario where second turn is almost an automatic win. Yeah at higher levels of play because it's unless you can alpha strike him into the ground and then sort of win on turns two and three. Actually, Lobo, there's another way to win it. You just pass a crazy amount of armor saves and just don't die, even though you get hit. Duh. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that works. That's how I did it. (laughs) My Morlock just survived multiple hits from high damage weapons. It's easy. Skill issue. Yeah, it's truly a skill issue. Okay, so that's very interesting. So if you're a newer player and you're listening to this, this is a rare opportunity to get into the head of somebody who has, has seen how the sausage is made, if you if you can uh, really conceive of that. So to you, let's talk about those key pieces, right? And that'll, that'll essentially be what this episode's about. ARO pieces versus Alpha Strike pieces. When you're looking for an ARO piece, Give us some of the key features that you think make a good, solid, consistent ARO piece. Okay, there's a couple of things you're looking for. Number one, either the fact that it's incredibly durable, so something like a Vocalac missile launcher, hmm. something like a tag. Hacked, hacktow. Hacktow. Although, I'll, I'll come back to the hacktow for a moment. Um, okay, I'm excited. Because you, <laughs> well, the thing is, the hacktow is an amazingly powerful offensive piece. Mm-hmm. And every time you expose an a-, a piece as an ARO, you can you're calculating odds, right? The Volkolak missile launcher is armor seven and cover. It's BS twelve. In a link, it becomes BS fifteen. So it's two dice on eighteens. A total immune armor seven. Really, really hard to kill. Every time mm-hmm. someone shoots at it, they could crit it and it dies, right? Every time you expose an ARO piece, there's a chance it just goes away. So the hack tau, it's min minus six. It's ballistic skill fourteen. That's great. There's still a chance he just gets crit and dies. And while the Vocalac is not a bad offensive piece, the Hoktau is a much, much better offensive piece. So it's almost, unless you're in dire situations, you don't want to expose something like the Hoktau to a crit. Sure. So number one is durability. But even with durable pieces, you always want to have them. You want to give them outs. You want to give them a position where if they get hit, they can, they can guts to cover. Whether it's go prone mm-hmm. or guts behind a wall if you're a tag. Because you do not want to be stuck there eating ARO after ARO, sorry, shot after shot after shot. Because 
if your opponent is any good, they're going to be taking exchanges where they are heavily favored. So you don't want to expose your piece to lots of those. That's number one. Number two, very swingy AROs. So a Fusilier Missile Launcher, a Dailami. So anything armed with a template, even a Long Yaw, right? Long Yaws are great for this. Mm -hmm. Where, sure, statistically, they're not likely to win the fight in ARO. But if they do. But if they do. (laughs) And so it makes your opponent really think about what they're doing. Or then you have cheap ARO's, flash pulse bots, mm-hmm. war cores, things where you do not care if they die. You still don't want to throw them away, but if you have them in group 2, you know, people talking about it being like that's like your crumple zone, right? Do you have these models set up there you're primarily planning on playing the game with group 1 for people who like to play 10-5 splits. So if they're playing 10-5, they don't really care about their group 2 pieces and they can be thrown out there to absorb that alpha and act as ablative armor if you know for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. so that's really what those are the arrow pieces you're looking for oh sorry last one tr bots the thing about the tr bot is if you're going to take one take an engineer and either shove the engineer near the tr bot or shove a pal bot near the tr bot because the tr bot is really just a crit uh like slot machine it sure is it's critting on threes baby (laughs) Yep, you have a roughly 20% chance of critting every time it fires its gun. And sure, against a tag, you're probably going to get killed. Against any sort of apex gunfighter, it's probably going to knock you down. But it's unlikely for you to lose all three wounds, and then you just pick it back up. And on turn two and turn three, it's a much better arrow piece. So do so you do you think it's a good idea to not use it until turn two? No, no, I would still use it, but I just make sure you have the engineer next to next to it. So you just pick it up with an order because um, every single time you crit with that thing, you potentially kill a model. But you more importantly, no matter what happens, if you crit, you just sucked an order right out of the game. Yep, exactly. And now when you set it up, you want to avoid having it look at stuff that is going to kill it outright. So don't put it up against like a car who Feuerbach plus one burst. Don't put it up against like an HRMC tag. If you can, even that, to be honest with you, there's a decent chance you only take two wounds, but like missile launchers now fin a link and the, um, the Marauder plus one burst sniper, the Yaugat plus one burst. sniper. there's a lot of plus one burst snipers and links. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're all firing DA ammo. So, you want to avoid just losing it in one order. Well, not the Marauder, sir. It's just a regular sniper rifle. The Marauder has a plus Ariana. one burst version. Yeah, but it doesn't have a DA. Oh, I mean, they're, that's, they're, that's they're primitive. That's true. They don't know how those bullets work. <laughs> <laughs> I use that sniper, sir. I'm I love him still though. But yeah, that's what I would say. So, like, you know, premier premier ARO pieces. So Anybody in a you know, riot girl, especially in a link, Kamau in a link, Karhu in a link, Volkalak. Uh, there he is. There's more. <laughs> um, even something stupid and cheap, the Kappa Sniper. It's 19 points, and it's ballistic skill 15 in that link, and it can kill stuff if it wins that face to face, and you can't ignore it. I actively got shit from a local because I love Kappa snipers because they're so good for how expensive they are. Every time I've used them or her, I think it's a female model always does work. 
Every time. Every single time. A five-man sniper that's that cheap. The co- I absolutely love the security fire team. It's so cheap. It's cheap as chips or just, just pure effectiveness. Yeah. It's like fantastic. Seven points for five models. Two of which disgusting. are disgusting. With mind layer and two it's, of which are hackers. Yes. Disgusting. <laughs> absolutely disgusting. So yeah. And I mean, like I said, put tags on aero duty. Religious tags are taking a little bit of a risk because there's a chance they don't get to cuts to cover, but everybody else put them in a position that the first sign of trouble. Um, and then don't forget. So def- deployment zone defenses, it's, it's a layered defense. It's ARO pieces on top of hacking area, on top of mine layer, on top of um, corner guards to direct template weapons. And the more things you can throw out there that force your opponent to drain orders, the better. By the way, Armand and Toha with a uh, symbiomate is really an annoying arrow piece to take out. Yes, it is. Same thing with the Sukiel missile launcher, the mate. Sukiels are so good. It's disgusting. Anyway, so that's the arrow thing. So hopefully somebody gets something out of that. Let's look at the other side. Other person doesn't have any things that are standing up. They've null deployed, as they call it. Uh, let's just say they don't have a very good layered midfield defense, no mine layers. Maybe they're playing Rama, right? They don't have a whole lot of midfield. Oh, actually, no, actually, never mind. Not anymore. Actually, they might have a they might have a sunny. What's a real when you're looking for an alpha attack piece, what are the things that you're looking for? I'll preface it. It's probably speed. Am I right? Go. Yes. Speed, <laughs> direct template weapon, close combat ability, smoke. If they have eclipse, even better. So bear. Uberfall Commando, Norkius. Um, and there's disposable ones and non-disposable ones. I think the Lowly Desperado is an amazing assault piece. It's five points, six points, something stupidly cheap. Seven. Seven. Oh, well then. Plus one burst assault pistol. Yeah. And a chain <laughs> rifle and smoke. And it's impetuous. And it has mimetism. It doesn't even have to be impetuous. You can make it normal. I, it's I still, I might do that. I give up the order for the ability to come around a corner and have mm-hmm. cover with that plus one. The Sujan heavy shotgun. Amazing. It's ridiculous. Alpha striker. So any, and what you want to set up is the fork. You want to have, give, give your opponent bad choices. So I come around a corner with the Sujan. What do you do? If you dodge, I hit you with a shotgun on twenties burst three. If you do anything but dodge, I just template you three times with the heavy shotgun and I'll accept your shot back because odds are you may or may not hit me. Even if you do, I'm armor eight and cover. Even if I fail to save, that's only one of my three wounds because I have two wounds and no one in cap. Now I find, and I want your opinion on this. I find that whenever that ARO presents itself, I always just take the shot because I've always believed that if, and obviously the situation depending, obviously, but I take the shot more than not just because of the fact that I know that I'll die but I prefer the slim chance that you might also die in the process. Well, not in this case, but you'll also take the wound or die as well instead of me just dodging and then continuously trying to not get hit. So the answer is you have to go all or nothing. Right. So either everyone's shooting and you want to try and kill that guy, kill the, the alpha striker in one order or everyone's dodging and you're trying to just bleed him of orders. It's so like the Sujan is a good example of where a dodge is not necessarily a bad thing because the Sujan is awful in close combat. 
So if you can dodge and contact the thing, that's great. Cause now you've locked it down because it's going to be really hard for him to get out of close combat with you. But let's assume your opponent is smart and does not leave you within enough dodge distance to get to you. If you dodge with some of your guys and shoot with some of them, I'm just going to template everyone who shoots and ignore the Dodgers. And now because you've only shot with some of you, you probably aren't going to kill me on that order, which means I'm going to get to go again. And now what do you do? Do you shoot? Okay. If anybody shoots, I'm going to template them and ignore the Dodgers and potentially get more and more orders out of it. If everybody shoots and I just template everyone, well, there's a chance of everyone shooting at me. I just die. You're going with them. Yes. In an ideal world, the best way to defend against them is force them. Like you might have one or two guys on the edge, whether it's a Morlock or a Jaguar or, or like a Myrmidon or some sort of warbed. Dadarazi is a good example where they're sort of on the edge where there's nothing where you can really do to defend them against the Sujan once it gets across the board. Hmm. But once it gets past that outer layer and it tries to go in for like the guts of your army, you want to make it so that you have cross DZ lines of fire. So it's like, okay, the Sujan is going to come around here and shoot at model a well model a is going to dodge but models b and c who are about 16 or 17 inches away from the sujan they're going to shoot him and if you have a good enough field of fire it doesn't matter whether he goes for model a b or c whatever model he goes for dodges the other one shoot which is why by the way one of the components i always say look for in an alpha striker is a smoke thrower or an eclipse thrower because then you can start cutting down ARO lines to your model. And obviously that's going to drain orders. You're going to kill less stuff, but it means your guy is alive longer. All right. Let's take this into the theoretical. Okay. (laughs) The people want to know. And by the people, I mean me. What does CB need to do to make Shona better? Go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you gave her smoke, I don't, I don't know why I understand why they don't give her smoke, but I just want her to be, I just want to use her so bad. <laughs> it just feels so bad to not be able to use her. Um, if you want to use Shona, I think the best way Starmada. to use her is Starmada. Yeah. Just shove her in a Harris with something. Varangian. You can yeah. link him with a Varangian. Yeah. The other thing I would say is give her shock immune. That would help. Cause She's one of like the three models out there who is no wind in cap and not. Shot yeah, there's more. I than think three, but it's, Bill also doesn't have it. I like bad profiles. Uh, the proxies don't. Um, yeah, there's not a lot. There's some. It's just so strange. You think a character, you would just automatically get it. But I mean, not even all characters have no wound in cap. Like Den- Denma's maybe not a great example because he's so cheap. But what other characters? There's characters out there like there are characters out there that don't have no wounding cap, and it always surprises me when it comes up. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of proliferation of that from N3 to N4. Um, oh, for sure. But yeah, by the way, if you want to use Shona, I mean, you could just do a double, like, do a, a Varangian and Shona. It's That's a, what I'm saying. It's a 12-point tax to use her, but she's far more likely to get up, up the board. Anytime I've ever done anything with her, it was in that duo. And it just... It makes me feel so happy when you bonk somebody with that sword and you're like, uh, it's like damage 18 explosive AP. Yes. It's like, 
Take your saves, please. I, I killed a tag with it. Felt real good. Oh, I mean, if she gets into close combat with almost anything. You're dead. Uh, <laughs> or at the very least, it's a coin toss. That's true. And that's one of the big issues, I think, with Infinity is I wish Melee was a little more nuanced, I guess, maybe. I think it might detract from the game itself because now you're focusing on like a whole other part of the game. But well, I, think I don't know. The way it's set up right now is for the vast majority of models, if neither of you is a close combat specialist, it's a coin flip. If both mm-hmm. of you are, coin, are close combat specialists, it's a coin flip. If one of you is a close combat specialist and the other one isn't, the close combat specialist wins the vast majority of the time. Like far more than apex gunfighter versus average gunfighter because of the because of the crit chance. Like Norky is burst two hitting on 28s against a normal model who's going to be burst one hitting on like a 12. That's way better than the salamandra shooting even at like you know, a crappy line infantry. That's that is that's fair. It's only when you get to models like I mean, the Uberfall is probably one of the few models out there that is just like, if it's my turn, yeah, you just lose. <laughs> and if it's your turn, you still probably just lose, even if you go one on one against me, because the combination of natural born warrior and martial arts and the CC attack minus three is usually too much to to overcome. Twenty points. I mean, technically seventeen. You don't even know. How to- <laughs> I've, that's fair. Right? If you don't want to bring Pupniks, that's true. But 20 points for Uberfall. Yep. I don't oh, know, man. It's, it's crazy. One of the, it's one of the pushed models. One of the great mysteries of the Infinity Universe. <laughs> it's the 20 points for Uberfall Commandos. Yeah, it's very put. That's a good way to put it. It's very pushed. All right. Well, you know what? That was very enlightening. Actually, I learned a lot from that, too. So there you go. That's the meat of that one. Uh, so I guess the last silly question I have for you is, do you have a model? It sounds like there's not one that you go for like lore wise, but is there a specific model that you find yourself using more than any other? I mean, I always really like the way the Sally looks like, I just think it's a really amazing model. And every time I play nomads, it's in the list. So I think that's among my, that's probably my favorite model that I use would say it would be the Sally. It is a shame that, uh, you don't see it more because the sculpt itself is incredible. Easily one of their best mm-hmm. sculpts. Oh, yeah. It's it's really, really cool. So after talking about all that heaviness, I usually like to do some kind of word association thing. Uh, knowing that you are a history thing, I did change it in my brain a little bit. So here are the rules. I'm going to say two words. You tell me you, you don't even have to say one of the ones I say, but you just say whatever first comes to your mind. Okay. Called the word association game. Uh, they don't mean anything. You attribute your own meanings. So sure. here we go. World War One or Vietnam? Trench. That's a good answer. You know, it's a real shame that World War One doesn't get more attention. I don't want to say it doesn't get attention. It doesn't get more credit for like how god awful it was. I think it does everywhere but the United States. That's fair. That's tr- actually that's a fair point. You know, and here's the thing. Recently, there's been kind of like a I think because since the World War Two shooters been so played out. There's been like a recent dearth of World War One games coming out. Amnesia, the 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 bunker is probably a great example of it. Where highly recommend, by the way, fantastic game, World War One, and just the oppressiveness of being stuck in a tiny box for. I mean, how long was that war? Like six, seven years. Uh, four. Uh, was it only four? I could have. I thought it was more than that, but. Either way, regardless, imagine sitting inside of a concrete box listening to explosions happening outside for 
four years if you made it the whole time. Well, I think World War One. I, I mean, the reason why World War One doesn't get a lot more play, at least here in the states, is we were only in it for a year. Sure. Um, if you it's actually sort of interesting, if you look at a lot of the stuff in the UK, at least as far as I can tell, and obviously if any of your UK listeners want to correct me, by all means, I think that sort of the effect on the national psyche was far more traumatic after World War I than even after World War II. Um, I mean, they had basically an entire generation buried in the mud mm-hmm. somewhere in France. Um, and as far as gameplay, I think what's interesting is a lot of people, you say World War One, and I, I even said trench, right? That's what comes to mind. But if you want to play World War One games, don't play Western Europe, play Eastern Europe, play yeah. the fighting over in Tannenberg. East Africa or yeah, in the Middle East. There's no trenches. Trench warfare is specifically a West Front phenomenon in that war. I think because especially like the Lawrence of Arabia stuff, I thought was super interesting. Yeah, there's just getting a ton of fighting against the Ottomans and and out there. And um, I think that most people find trench warfare boring because what is it? It's I slam my head into a trench and either and it's a war game, right? So it's just rolling dice. So it's I walk my guys across like a small area and roll a bunch of dice. And if I roll better than you, I win. If I roll worse than you. I lose. There's not a lot of maneuver. There's not a lot of tactics. It's just slam into the trench. Whereas if you're playing Eastern front or against the Ottomans, unless you're going to do Gallipoli, which is just a beachhead version of trench warfare, Mm -hmm. there is a lot more open warfare and a lot more maneuver, which is more interesting to play. And you have a lot more painting opportunities because, you know, the, the world has had a very strange, evolution in uniforms where they used to be really colorful. I think world war one was kind of where it finally like fully switched, especially with like the French where they used to still wear colorful pants. Now everybody just wears green. Yes. Yes. And then for those of you who like, I don't like to paint, which is always a shame in world war two, because the Germans have one, two, three, four, like five different uniforms, at least mm-hmm. even in the, like the Wehrmacht, you have gray, then you have the desert, and then you have the winter, and so it's just a pain in the ass to have all of them painted up properly. But you played Flames of War, so you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, I know. I play a lot of both action, too. I have a lot. Every single one of those color schemes you just talked about, I own and painted them. <laughs> I love DAK. And then the vehicles. The vehicles. You have Dunkelgelb later in the war, Gray earlier in the war. Mm-hmm. You have all the funky stuff. There's a unit of tigers that get shipped to North Africa in 42 that is like, Mm-hmm. It's green. It's like Luftwaffe green for this one specific unit. Nobody else. Because I don't really, there wasn't very many of them. I know the first one that got captured was they shot it with a big gun. It made a big noise. And then the guys in the tank got out because they thought it was broken. <laughs> they just left it there. I think that was the first one of the first uh, encounters of, with the tiger. That happens a lot in World War II, um, where stuff like just breaks down. One of my books is on Crete and the British only have like. It's been a while since I wrote it. I believe they have four. Funny, I played the the first Falschmager okay. in Flames of War. That was my army. Loved them on Crete. They're, they're still the they're not the first Falschmager in Crete yet. But I think it was the third. No, it's the seventh 
I got to look it up. It's been a while. It's like, I know what you're talking about, but I know. Lufthansa Sturm Regiment is the first, is the unit that lands at uh, Malamay. But it's 17th Flieger and it's the 10th Mountain. Mm -hmm. I want to say 17th Flieger. I'll look it up. Anyway, I don't even know where I was going with this point. You were talking about a crew. Oh, yeah. The British have like five tanks. (laughs) That's right. And they don't even have ammunition for the main gun. So. They're at one point they're just driving around this tank shooting the false of the machine guns and they they go down a road that's too narrow and they ram the turret like the gun hits a wall and jams the turret so they have to just run away with it like the false couldn't hurt it but they just hit a wall and then had to leave so there's all sorts of just weird stories about stuff breaking down and especially for the germans who in an american unit they all have the same vehicles mm-hmm the Shermans and Stewarts and like, that's it. That's that's the tank. Only they're on you have tank destroyers, but the Germans, any given unit, you could have a mix of yeah, Panzer twos, Panzer threes, Panzer fours. Then you got Stugs. There's a ton of them because they can't T 38s. The old Czechoslovakian tanks that they, <laughs> they stole. Yep. The Czech mm. thir- the 38 T T I'm sorry. Yeah. 38 T sorry. That's a fascinating stuff. Yeah, anybody listening to this, if you want to learn interesting facts about World War II, man, my goodness, there's some so many interesting stories. How uh, a German, I think he was a messenger, rode into a town on his bike, walked up to the like city hall, and he said, surrender this town because there's an army coming. And they, the single guy took the entire, <laughs> he just surrendered. I think it was in, I think it was Czechoslovakia or something like that. It was definitely like uh, that area of uh, like in the early war. He just comes in on a bike, single guy, takes the whole town. Yeah, there's lots. I think one of my favorite stories is uh, during the war, the Germans are trying to confuse the Allied bombing. So it's in Holland, if I remember correctly. They build a fake airport, like a fake airfield. So they have wooden planes on the ground, like mock-up dummies of German planes. They have they build a bunch of hangars and dugouts all out of wood. And the British knew it was fake. So... They waited till it was complete, and then they flew a mosquito, which is an all wooden plane, and they dropped a single wooden mm-hmm. bomb on the. And just, <laughs> it just lands there, just to sort of like an fu to the Germans. Um, so yes, you just wasted all your time building this thing to fool us, and we knew it was fake the whole time. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, but I don't, don't want to go too off the deep end with World War II. I could spend hours talking about it, but. That might be a whole nother episode of coming on. We'll just talk stupid sure. history. Man, that would be amazing. Anyway, is there anything else you want to tell the viewers, Lobo? You, I'm sure you've been on plenty of podcasts and have had plenty of opportunities to talk to the people, but is there anything you want to say? Just have fun. Go out there. Get out and support your local gaming store. Get out and go to, go to a tournament. There's a lot of people who don't go to tournaments because they're worried. Like, I'm not good. That they're not I'm good enough. embarrassed. Yeah. No. Just go. Everyone you meet there is going to be nice to you, especially if they find out you're new. Just say, hey, listen, I haven't mm-hmm. played a lot. You know, could you like give me some help? They will 100% do so. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. And like I said, most important thing is have fun. If you come to any event that I am running, if you say you are new, I will be going out of my way to make sure that you have some of the best time of your life. I'll tell you that right now. And I guarantee you most other TOs and most other people in events are going to feel the exact same way. Cause if you don't, 
if you if you just uh, cannibalize your young, this community would never last. And most intelligent people know that. So you are, I don't want to say the next generation per se, but we will go out of our way to ensure that you enjoy yourself. Please come to events, please. I would love to hear stories of people that go to these things. Yeah, please. If, you, if you're listening to this and it convinced you to go to an event, please send me a message and I will 100% advocate for you on the wider internet. But anyway, so Lobo, I think we did it. Jake, it's been a pleasure. My man, uh, it's been a long time coming. I finally got to meet you. And since I had such a good time, I'm probably going to buy you two ice creams at Captain Con. Deal. (laughs) So you and I will play. And right before we start, you hand me the ice cream. So I can't roll dice or move models. And it just went on time. Now (gasps) I've seen through your nefarious. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm just going to constantly have uh, caterers continuously bring you ice cream. That if you don't eat fast enough, we'll melt and ruin your side of the table. No. You don't want to be that guy. uh, (laughs) Quick aside, I had a game where it was my models. I was putting on a game at Historicon, and the guy had a bowl of ice cream. And it was melting all over him and on his hands. (laughs) And he goes to pick up my models off the table with ice cream. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) can you like clean your hands? And so he shoves his fingers in his mouth and licks them clean and then goes to pick up my models. Like, no, wait, no, that doesn't count. We'll hold the game. Can you please go to the bathroom, wash your hands, and then come back and touch my stuff? People are weird. And I'd like to actually specifically call this out. When you first came into our Discord, uh, the Someday Night Gaming Discord, which is kind of like unofficially the Arachnid, uh, Arachnid Discord, you posted a U.S. Ariadna list that I have actually been practicing with. Oh, cool. And I love it. And I will be using it at Adepticon. It will be following all of the rules that we went over today because I I got to say, if you, to the T, you nailed it. The only thing that I don't really understand in the list is the antipodes are kind of just in the way. <laughs> I just want the devil dog. CB, please make a devil dog team that's cheaper. Get rid of the antipode, please. <laughs> Yeah, the antipode, I mean, it's sometimes, it's situationally useful. Yeah. It trips minds. Um, it it does have sensor. So if you have to clear, because I, if the list I'm talking about has shot, heavy shotgun double dogs, so they cannot intuitive attack to clear camel markers, but you can always sensor on the way in with the dogs. Um and it's always plus one burst. But I agree with you if you said I could take a heavy shotgun devil dog for seven points cheaper and not have the antipode, I would as well. It's It feels weird when you're standing there and you're like, I'm going to throw a grenade with the devil dog. And you look at the antipode and I'm like, he's going to stand there, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's really weird having something that can shoot and something that doesn't shoot in the same team. I don't, I don't know why. It's just it bends well, my brain sometimes. You, you don't complain with the Uberfall. Well, the Uber, I don't think I've ever shot the gun on the Uberfall. <laughs> I don't think it's ever come up. It happens occasionally, but you throw a clips with it. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, that's fair, I guess. That's fair. You see, I don't think I've ever won that face off, though. So my Uberfall just immediately dies. Anyway, Arachnids, it's been good talking to you. Or we sit here talking about stupid stuff for hours on end. I'm Dr. D. You can find me at 
fury painting at doc oh my gosh fury painting at gmail.com or you can send me a message on discord at dr d that's dr dot d if you have anything and please guys give us a five-star review if you're listening it helps me find people like lobo at random events i met him behind a dumpster it was crazy he was just there uh pretending to ride a fake dolphin it was weird can you explain yourself on that one (laughs) i have no explanation Okay, well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to have to ask him yourself. <laughs> Hopefully, a, Captain Khan, but this is going to come out too late. Anyways, it was fantastic talking to you, Lobos. I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope everybody listening to this has a wonderful day. Thanks for listening, Nomads. Make sure you keep it popping out there and don't let Aleph get you. Is there anything you want to say? No, I'm good. He's good, guys. See you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, check out all the other great shows here at the Professional Casual Network. Like what, Danny? I'll tell you. On Mondays, we've got the Lost Omens podcast, our Pathfinder 2E actual play, hosted by me, playing through the Extinction Curse AP. Also, streaming on twitch.tv slash professional casual network at 7 p.m. Eastern time, you can check out, oh yeah, the Power Phase, our Marvel Crisis Protocol live battle report show. On Tuesdays, the podcast version of Wait, Did I Roll a Wild? Our Marvel Crisis Protocol Povlog is available. On Wednesdays, alternating releases on the Patreon, we have Settling the Southlands, our homebrew Wolforp actual play, and The Slithering, a Pathfinder 2nd edition actual play. And on Thursdays, live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on twitch.tv slash professional casual network, we've got, wait, did I roll a wild, our Marvel Crisis Protocol povlog. You can also check out back episodes of Elite Eight Showdown and the first 39 episodes of the Lost Omens podcast, the first 24 episodes of Settling the Southlands, and the first handful of episodes of The Slithering on the YouTube at youtube.com slash the professional casual.